0: So I'm teaching through uh, Revelation chapter 2, 1 through 7, and I'm not actually going to be verse by verse today, but uh, I'm going to be kind of topical, because Rory, if you were here last week, Rory did an exceptional job teaching on uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, which is um, one, the first letter to the churches in uh, Asia, and specifically it's to the church in Ephesus. And um, I'm just going to start a timer here, so I don't take more than I am allotted. Okay, so uh, so we're going to look at Ephesians two or sorry uh, Revelation two one through seven again. But as I read it, and as Rory was talking to me a couple weeks ago about teaching this Sunday, and said, Hey, you know, just look at the churches, um, the letters to the churches by Jesus and Revelation, and you know, just think about. Maybe something that you would pick one of those churches to focus on. And so I read through Revelation 2, you know, again and looked at it. And, um, and something that I just sensed uh, was, was um, something that's seen in, in, in the first church, the, church to, the, 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 the message to the church in Ephesus. And so we're going to look again at uh, Revelation 2, 1 through 7. And so, uh, Janae, if you could bring that up. Okay, so I'm just going to read this uh, to us. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And this is actually, I, I like to read New Living Translation. It's more um, everyday language. So the Bible's actually written in another language. It's written in, well, the New Testament is written in Greek. And so any time we're reading our Bible in English, we're reading a translation. Some translations try to be super literal, which is important if you're going to be talking about doctrine but if you're if you're trying to get more personal application out of it there are are more like and this isn't even as far as a paraphrase translation but there are just translations where they just try to use words that we actually use in everyday language and so when i was in high school uh i first started read or right as i was getting out of high school i started reading the bible and i got a new living translation and so i i kind of jumped back between new living and new king james um But anyway, I I thought we could look at it in new, New Living today because we saw New King James last week. So it says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. This is Jesus talking to a church in Asia. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. And you have discovered that they are liars. Keep going. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God." And so, Rory did an excellent job uh, last week um, teaching through this. And uh, I was kind of disappointed that he got to it before he was gone, because I was just going to do the whole thing. Uh, but so, so and he, I'm glad he taught through it last week, because he did a better job than I could have. Uh, especially, he emphasized last week this, this idea that you can leave your first love, that you can love God at the beginning, become a Christian, and then as the, you know, monotony of life takes its toll on you, you can, you can keep doing what is right, but that you could lose your heart to be after God. And so that was an incredible message he gave last week. Did a phenomenal job. I encourage you to go listen to it. We have a YouTube channel where you can watch it. Um, but one of the things that he didn't talk a whole lot about were these people, the Nicolaitans. And so I think it's verse 3. Um, Maybe verse 2. In verse 2, this is what caught my eye the other day when I was reading this. It says, I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. And uh, and we'll get further into that. But what's amazing about that verse is it is so counterculture to the world that we live in. I remember I'm 35, just turned 35, and I went to college, you know, 17 years ago. And I came out of Klamath Falls, which is, you know, just as conservative as Prineville. And uh, you don't learn a lot about, you know, uh, transgender people, homosexuals. You know, I, I had never, I don't know if I'd ever seen a Muslim. You know, like you just you just grow up in a conservative you know, town in Oregon, and, and you just don't have a lot of exposure to that. And I remember the shock of going to uh, a liberal university and, and just some of it's not bad, you know, I mean, there were Muslims there, and I was just like, whoa, why are these girls dressed like this, you know, and, and there's, there's an exposure that I didn't have to other ways of thinking. And, um, but I remember this word was never really part of my vocabulary, tolerance, this word tolerance, and it was really, I don't know if it's as big of a word now, but back in 2002, when I was in college, it was like the word. Like, there needs to be tolerance for everything. And, um, And you see here, Jesus speaking to the churches, and he's encouraging the church, hey, I really appreciate that you are not tolerant of evil people. And that just totally flies in the face of our culture today. Um, and, and specifically, in, in context, what he's talking about is he's talking about false teachers. He's talking about uh, those who have um, you know, claims, doctrinal claims, that they're apostles but are not. You, you, and you can, you can actually read about these Nicolaitans that he's talking about in context in the next church as well. And um, so as I, as I started to try to figure out, like, who are these Nicolaitans and why would Jesus encourage people not to be tolerant of, of evil people, Um, You know, because like you think about Jesus, there's another side to Jesus where he is extremely loving and compassionate to people who are in sin. You know, there's the woman caught in adultery and all these Jews come and they're like, hey, let's stone her, Jesus. Don't you agree? And Jesus says to him, you know, okay, you who's without sin cast the first stone. And so then the, from the oldest to the youngest, they drop their stones and walk away, and and then Jesus interacts with this woman afterward. He says, "Woman, who are where are your accusers?" And and, and you know I don't remember word for word, but she says, she says something like, "They're not here." And and then Jesus says to her, "Neither do I accuse you." And then he says, "Now go and sin no more." And we see this side of Jesus as Christians, where Jesus is extremely loving. To people who are marginalized in our society, people who are outcasts in our society, you know. And so there's that side of Jesus that, you know, he's, he's, he's the friend of sinners. He, he goes and has dinner with a tax collector, which today would be like going and having dinner with, with a gay man or, or something. You know, it's just this out, marginalized outcast of society who's, who's, you know, by the religious people of the day is condemned. But at the same time, Jesus here says, don't tolerate evil people. And he's specifically talking about false teachers. You have discovered that they are liars. Go ahead to verse 3. Go to verse 5. Sorry. Okay, sorry, 6. I actually rode my motorcycle in today, had my Bible, totally forgot to bring my Bible. So I'm just... I'm right here, but I got most of it on this paper in front of me. Uh, G- and now Jesus says, you hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. So even though Jesus is extremely compassionate to people who are struggling with sin or who are outcasts in society, at the same time, he hates the evil deeds that they practice. And if you look at uh, the, the next church in the story, he actually um, even describes their doctrine and how he hates their doctrine and what they teach. And so Jesus is talking about... Uh, uh, now, uh, Nicolaitans, let, let me get into this now. So the Nicolaitans, I, I'd never really done any research on this. Who were these people, the Nicolaitans? So I, um, I did some research. There was um, a deacon in the book of Acts, one of the seven deacons that was chosen when Stephen was chosen, and his name was Nicholas. And um, from church history, we don't know this 100%, but from church history, the early church fathers, right after the New Testament was written, said that these Nicolaitans were uh, disciples of this guy, Nicholas. And and when you read in the book of Acts about Nicholas, he was a convert to Judaism. He was a, he was a Gentile, a Greek before Jesus, he converted and became Jewish in, in his religious practices and so he was Greek but he was Jewish and then Jesus comes around Christianity comes around he converts to Christianity and so he's this guy who sort of embraces different ideas and and the the way the church fathers describe him he had one foot now at the time he was just an upright guy but you see just like Jesus talks about there's these false teachers that are going to rise up um, there's false teachers like this is just this is you, you read the New Testament, there's always false teachers. And so this guy, Nicholas, according to church history, was raised up as a deacon in the book of Acts, but later on became a false teacher. And the, his false teaching was specifically that he had one foot in the Greek world, and he had one foot in the church. And so he he went around telling Christians it was okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols, which to us as, really, what does that even have to do with anything? And what that meant was, it's okay to go to the temple and participate in the practices of, of worship, to like the goddess Diana, where there's sexual things going on and it's very dark and evil. And, he, and so, if you read the second church in the book of Revelation, the Nicolaitans are not only condemned for evil deeds, but they're condemned for sexual immorality and eating meat sacrificed to idols. And so what this false teacher was doing is he was saying, hey, church, it's okay to have like one foot in the world and it's okay to have one foot in the church, okay? And so having looked at all this, I started to think a lot about homosexuality in our culture because that's sort of like the hot topic right now. And so I started just thinking like, does this principle apply to... What, what's going on in our world today, that there are these false teachers who say it's okay to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. And you know, how, does that, how does that relate to homosexuality? How does, how does this idea that we shouldn't be tolerant relate to, to where we're at today as a church? And so I took a fresh look at this debate by what we would traditionally call false teachers over gay marriage, okay? So um, we live in a very interesting time in human history, because uh, there 's kind of been a shift in the last hundred years of how we decide moral decisions in our country, so historically America you know sort of had Christian principles maybe that they followed, uh, but they that they had a certain form of secular christian or secular version of this you know because if you read most of the documents of, of the formation of our country, they, for the most part, keep God out of it. But you can see how Christianity just totally influenced the formation of our country. But historically, you know, uh, the pluralism that existed in America was just a pluralism of Christianity. You know, you can be a Baptist, you can be a Catholic, you can be a, you know, uh, Episcopal or whatever. But, but the early state of our country was Christian, but pluralistic about Christianity, but we've now moved to a place where our country is now saying, you know, we're much more pluralistic than that. And we've moved away from this idea that you can use the Bible to determine truth. And so uh, we've kind of started to embrace, especially I think I teach biology, with the rise of Darwinism and, and, and uh, just scientific uh, things in general, we've moved toward what's called secular humanism. And so we're seeing a shift in our policies and our government because our government's switching from sort of a Christian worldview to a secular humanist worldview. And so that's why we see these things like abortion and, and gay marriage changing in our country. And, um, you know, some Christians, like, tend to look at that and just throw their hands up in the air. And it's like, it's all over. The world's coming to an end. And I would, I would actually like to encourage you guys that Christians actually do better when they are socially and politically the minority. So, you know, like, think about early church Christianity. Christianity was not, like, the the government of the world. Christianity was not, you know, a a big part of of anything. But Christianity flourished, you know. Uh, When Christians are persecuted, there's a famous quote that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That, like, actually Christians do better when they're persecuted. And so, like, I don't think we need to throw our hands in the air and just be like, oh, my gosh, our country, we're doomed. It's so bad, you know. Like, it's okay. Like, this world is not our home. Like, we're not, God, Jesus didn't say go and make a government of Christianity. You know, that was, that's, Jesus wasn't very political at all. He's sort of apolitical. He was much more focused on individuals. And he said go and make disciples of every nation. He didn't say go and make a Christian government of every nation. Like, that's, that's I don't see that in Jesus. And, um, boy, I sure hope Nick's here. Oh, good. It's just Adam messing with the sound. Okay. Um, so, so even though we see changes in our government as Christians that maybe we would interpret as negative, like, really, like, it's okay. God's still on the throne, and his plan was never to raise up a perfect American government that would usher in the coming of Jesus Christ. As you, as you actually study the book of Revelation, as we're going to do this, you actually see that it seems like, uh, things are going to be kind of bad in the world when Jesus shows up. And so, like, we, we can be okay with the fact that our government's changing and not panic, okay? But we do. it's an interesting, just as a person outside of it all, it's interesting to observe why things are changing the way they are. Basically, the foundation for truth maybe used to be, what does God say? The foundation for truth right now in our country is, does it hurt someone else? You know? And so gay marriage, like, what does God say? God says, man and woman right? Like Jesus said, one man, one woman, you know, marriage. But, you know, now we live in a country where it's like, does it hurt somebody if two gay guys get married and live together in a house? Well, yeah, I mean, people make the argument that it somehow it hurts society really bad, but, but um, on the surface, it doesn't appear to. And so, um, so that's why we see this changing in our culture. Now, as Christians, how do we determine what's right and wrong? Now, here's here's what I want to get into, okay? You know, like, our culture's changing, and, and like I said, um, we don't need to panic about it. But one thing I do see in the church that is very concerning is how Christians are determining what's right and wrong. Now, I don't know how the Nicolaitans justified uh, practicing sexual immorality and... Uh, you know, eating meat... Sac- I mean, the meat sacrifice to idols things is a really fascinating study. It's kind of like Halloween, okay? And I'd love to get into it, but I don't have time. But how the Nicolaitans justified and said, it's okay to practice se- sexual immorality and still be a Christian, you know, in the forms of sexual immorality that were going on, like temple prostitution and all this really dark stuff. Like, I don't know how they justified that, okay? But we see a similar trend in American Christianity where there are liberal false te- well, i'm going to call them false teachers there are liberal false teachers in the church calling themselves christians who are trying to make a case and they're very they're actually very good at this and, the, and like i actually think like i was thinking about how i don't know if i should talk about this yet so i was thinking about how in our culture today you got like calvinists and arminianists right you got like people who believe god is totally sovereign like and that's why a person becomes saved. You have people believe human free will is a part of it, you know. And it's sort of this issue, like in our church, it's this issue we say, eh, it's an open-handed issue. You know, like, maybe they're right, maybe they're right. Or, you know, like, uh, should an infant be baptized? Like, okay, you know, it's kind of an open-handed issue. Um, there is a wave coming, whether we agree with it or not, in the church of this becoming what people want to call an open-handed issue. And so let's, let's take a look at six passages. Well, before I even get there, how does a Christian determine if homosexuality is right or wrong? If you call yourself a Christian, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, how do you decide? Like, you now live in a culture that is saying you need to uh, be tolerant. You need to affirm these lifestyles. You need to accept this stuff. And, and so how, how do we as Christians decide whether or not... Homosexuality is wrong Now I like to go Back to Jesus Like when I I, kind of study a little bit of philosophy And how you determine truth And how you know something And what I like to As my very first starting point As I think about this I want my very first starting point to be Jesus Christ I look at him And I determine truth Based on what he says That's, That's my assumption Like I am totally biased And that I'm going to follow Jesus. I've heard the words of this Jesus guy. I admire him. I'm going to follow him. I'm totally believing what he says. And I think that's the foundation of what it is to be a Christian. And so if you believe uh, in Jesus Christ, if you want the name Jesus Christ on you as Christian, uh, then I would argue that Jesus Christ gets to tell you what is true. Okay, And when it comes to the Bible, is the Bible-inspired Jesus believed the scriptures were inspired, okay? Uh, Matthew 22, 32. Got this one, Janae? Jesus has got these people talking to him called the, I got to get my timer out, I know I'm going. Okay, speed up. Okay, so Jesus has got these people talking to him called the Sadducees. And there were these two Jewish groups back in the day, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the Sadducees were kind of like the atheists of the day. They didn't believe there was life after death. They believed in God. okay, So that they weren't atheists. But they didn't believe in heaven. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They just thought you, you live and you die and that's it. And then there were these guys, and they were Jews. And then there were these guys, the Pharisees, and they said, no, there's a resurrection. So these two competing philosophies, these guys come up to Jesus, and the Sadducees asked Jesus a, a hard question about, I don't remember if it was the time where they asked him, hey, this guy's wife dies, and then, or, and then this woman, her husband dies, and she marries seven different men. It might be that one, but they ask him a question trying to say, hey, there can't be a resurrection, Jesus. And then Jesus looks at the Sadducees who believe there's no resurrection, and he says to them, I, it is written, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he's quoting the Old Testament, and he's saying the Old Testament is inspired and can answer this question. And then he makes this statement, God is not the God of the dead, but the living. Now, the first time you read this, these two things might seem totally, what? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jason. God has gone the Okay, and I, I was quizzing my wife about this last night. Like, what's he going at here? And she's like, oh, the am. The word am right there. I am am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was written, I don't know, 1,000, 2,000 years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are long dead. But God, and and even when he's quoting this, they were already dead uh, from the Old Testament. But he's saying, when God says, I am their God, and they're dead, that means they're still alive. They don't just stop existing. And so Jesus believed the very tense ...of a verb was inspired by God and was useful to to prove a point. This is how Jesus viewed the scriptures. There's another place where Jesus talks about the dot of an I and the cross of a T. He believed the scriptures were inspired, even the dot on the I and the cross of the T. And so as I am a follower of Jesus Christ, I don't want to base my worldview about homosexuality or any other issue on what the world is trying to tell me is right. They're humanists. They don't actually have a foundation for right and wrong. They're actually borrowing from the Christian worldview to say this is good. Now, I mean, you could start with the assumption in humanism that, like, what's true is what's best for humans, okay? So that's their faith, just like this is my faith. But, I mean, there's no, especially a lot of humanists are atheists. You know, I have this famous quote of Richard Dawkins, which I didn't put in there, but I think I have it here. Richard Richard Dawkins, this famous atheist, and he says, the universe that we observe has no evil, this is an atheist, okay, worldview, the universe that we observe has no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference, and this is an atheist being honest about their worldview, hey, if we're just matter that somehow amazingly arranges itself into walking, talking human beings, there's no right and wrong, there's just indifference you just matter expressing itself in an interesting way as the universe explodes and then comes back together and it's all over that's that's the atheist worldview and so for an atheist to tell you you know like hey you're evil for telling someone that homosexuality is a sin you can't call me evil your worldview doesn't have evil you're borrowing evil from my worldview and then and then trying to tell me what my worldview says about something it's silly so as Christians, though, and there's lots. Of, I mean, there's we need to be understanding of people's different perspectives, and you know, humanists who probably believe in God and somehow. But there's no really strong foundation for right and wrong. Like it could shift with time, and so, um, as a Christian, when you're going to make a decision about what's true, what's right and wrong, you can't if you want to fundamentally be a follower of Christ. You go off what Jesus Christ says. Now, Jesus Christ also said, uh, so we, we can, you can make a really strong case. Jesus believed the Old Testament is inspired. Jesus also said that upon the confession of Peter, he was going to build his church. And he sends out these apostles. Now, there are people who want to say, you know, the Bible says this or that about homosexuality. But they also want to say the Bible isn't really inspired. And it's like, if you want to embrace homosexuality, that's great. But if you don't even believe the Bible's inspired, why are you trying to use the Bible to say homosexuality's okay? It's really twisted, okay? So I'm, I'm saying if you're a Christian and a follower of Jesus, take what the Bible says for what it says because Jesus promised not only did he believe the Old Testament's inspired, but he promised he was going to build a church on this confession of him as the Savior. And how can you build a church if, you, if the book's... And the, the letters written by your leaders that are then canonized into Scripture aren't even, you know, useful. If if we can't make a decision about right and wrong from the early teachings that are supposed to be inspired, just like the Old Testament, you know, we got nothing. And so, I as Christians, we should start with the assumption that the Bible's inspired, okay? If you're talking to somebody about homosexuality and they don't believe the Bible's inspired and they're a Christian, you know, like okay, well, we can't really talk about this because you don't even think the thing's you know, right about what it says. And so there's, a, there's an interesting uh, double standard there that, that you, you tend to see in liberal uh, people who interpret the Bible. Now, at the same time, like, I'm a millennial, just barely, just barely made it in. You're, like, looking at my hairline, like, you're not a millennial. <laughs> Depends which standard you use, but I think I'm a millennial. And so as a millennial, I don't like to be told... This is what the church has always taught, so this is what's true. I, I went back, and I've done this a couple times, but I tell you, I, I probably watched seven or ten hours of, of teachings on homosexuality this week. I had a lot of free time, because it's summer. And um, I just find it super interesting how people are responding to this topic. And so I've got a, a ton of stuff I'd like to say. Like, I literally, last night with Jessica, I sat down. I'm like, hey, will you listen to what I'm thinking about talking about? And like the first hour I'm talking... I'm like, yeah, I'm going to have to not talk about any of this. you know. And so I've just kind of stripped it down. I literally had like two and a half hours worth of stuff to talk about. So I've literally just stripped it down now to talk specifically about what does the Bible really say about this stuff. As I've, as I've researched it, I'm, I'm open-minded to this. Like if, if the Bible doesn't teach that homosexuality is a sin, like I don't want to embrace the idea that homosexuality is a sin. Um, but there, there's not a whole lot of a case you can make if you want to believe the Bible's inspired. If you want to have a traditional view of of the Bible, you're going to have a really hard time making a case that homosexuality is not sin. But I want to kind of educate you guys because you're going to run into this. This is common. Like this is uh, one guy I was listening to. He said this is the the beginning of the tsunami. And there's a few things going on like in our culture that I don't even want to mention with like Christians who are Bible teachers. Because because I don't want you to go there and look at that, you know. But there are these, you know, it's sort of, he described it as a tsunami. It's like it's starting to rise, you know. Like there's a, some of the Christians in our culture are beginning to compromise on this stuff. And it's just going to get worse. Like it's just going to kind of become a big wave that pe- a lot of people. Now, I don't think ever, like, all Christians are going to be like, yeah, homosexuality is totally biblical. Like, that's like, kind of silly, but, um, but there's going to be more and more of it in the church. And you, pro- you probably, if you're talking to people about this, have already heard about it. And so, um, so there are six passages in the Bible that talk about homosexuality, and I'm going to go through, like, four of them, okay? And, and, and just some of the things you're going to hear from people who think that, that there's a way to take... The, the main argument of people who try to take the Bible and say homosexuality is okay. The main argument is basically this. The homosexuality that's talked about in the Bible is not the homosexuality that exists today. And it's a pretty good argument, okay? Like, it's, it, that kind of works sometimes for things that are, you know, like you're not sure about in the Bible. And so I'm going to take that kind of that idea and I'm going to say, is that, is that true? And so they're basically saying, hey, we now live in a country, I don't know if you knew this, Jessica, my wife was surprised last night when I told her this, but in 2015, our country legalized gay marriage. Like, there's no state where they're allowed to, to ban gay marriage anymore. So the, the, the um, gay marriage movement is trying to say, hey, marriage is between two men monogamous for life or two women monogamous for life, and, like, that is not the same kind of homosexuality as all these things in the Bible where homosexuality is condemned. Okay? So let's look at them. So the first one is Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm just going to start in the Old Testament. So the first place uh, that you see homosexuality in the Bible is Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is a really good example of that argument. Okay? Sodom and Gomorrah is really, really jacked up. Like, it's really messed up. Like, I don't even understand it myself when I read it. Because you've got these, these guys, these angels... Who come to Sodom and Gomorrah and the men of the city come to Lot's house and they want to break in and rape these men and and then it gets even weirder because Lot offers his daughters instead of these angels and I mean the whole story is just really screwed up and that's a very very screwed up world that Lot's living in right and so if that was the only instance where homosexuality showed up in the Bible you could be like you know, I think it was more about, and, and it's even, there's even passages in the Old Testament that say the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was the sin of greed, okay? So, like, like there was more going on in Sodom and Gomorrah than just what we today call sodomy, right? Like, homosexual sex. There was uh, a greed and a desire for more and more and more, and a, and a, you know, they wanted to rape them. There was a lack of care for the, another person, and so there's. There was a level to this that was, that was twisted beyond just homosexuality. And so if the only place in the whole Bible where you saw homosexuality come up was in Le, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, like, I could understand why someone would say, like, I don't think that's the same as what we're dealing with today. But then you go to Leviticus 20.13, and it's a much more objective look at homosexuality. It says, and it's just all these rules about sex, and if you, it's in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. It's the same thing, and and it says, you know, if a man a man shouldn't lie with his neighbor's wife, a man shouldn't lie with his, you know, his brother's daughter, and all the. I mean, there's literally two chapters of rules about sex, and two times it says something to the effect of Leviticus 20:13. If a man lies with a man as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination and and so uh this is sort of the the one you know i remember like 2002 and gay marriage and one man one woman oregon you know there was sort of the stuff going on and, and you know you could talk to people people who aren't even christians who have no reason to say homosexuality is wrong like i mean i hate to say this but my own dad like my dad when that whole like ballot thing was going on my dad's not a christian he's he's an agnostic or an atheist but he, you know, he's an old guy, and so he's got old guy values. And so he's like, that's an abomination. And he actually went door to door to get signatures for the, the ballot measure or whatever. Cause, and, and I was just so perplexed by that as a young Christian who had I'd just become a Christian. I was like, why? Why does my dad? And, I, and, and this is something that concerns me as Christians and And I used to have that sticker on my truck, you know, one man, one woman, yes on 37 or whatever it was. And I was like 18 years old. And and I started to feel the like hatred people have for you when you don't agree with the homosexual lifestyle. And I started to wonder, oh, is this healthy? Like we're like kind of aligning ourselves with hateful people who don't have a biblical worldview as to why homosexuality is sin. They just think it's sin because they think it's gross. You know, and and that that still kind of makes me wonder, sometimes about you know like i don't i probably shouldn't talk about this but i don't like really have like strong republican tendencies you know i mean i love you guys who are republicans awesome but there are things about the republican party that kind of make me i don't know you know like like i don't think jesus would be a republican or a democrat you know he'd have a much better platform probably but uh, anyway uh so, this word abomination, right? And so, uh, this is a much more objective look at homosexuality. But there's a really good argument that people who are say, try, to, try to say it's okay to be homosexual, their argument is, hey, 18 and, 19, 18 and 20, chapters 18 and 20, they condemn homosexuality. Chapter 19 condemns people who wear clothing made of two fabrics. Okay. So we don't, I don't know how many of you are wearing your 50-50 cotton poly blend right now, but it's just so comfortable. You know, like we don't always, as Christians, we don't follow all of the rules from the Old Testament. How many of you have eaten bacon this week? You know what I'm saying? So like, like that's a pretty good argument. Like if the Old Testament was the only thing that condemned homosexuality, then like maybe, maybe it's not about the, you know, maybe it's an Old Testament thing. Okay. But it gets so much more interesting, okay? So then, now at the same time, yeah, I don't have time for that. Okay, now go look at 1 Timothy 1.10, okay? Uh, we also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful. Oh, I might be reading it. Let's see, 1, nine and 10? Okay, let me, let me just start over on the screen, Okay. Let's go back tonight. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. So we're getting a list of bad things. For the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy, the profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, you look at this word... What, which by, I think, NIV is Men Who Practice Homosexuality. I don't ever look at Greek words because I don't speak Greek. But this one's super interesting. Uh, the, the, the word homosexuality has only existed for about 150 years. Okay? So that isn't what the original Greek word was. It wasn't homosexuality, right? Um, it was Greek. It wasn't English. And so, when people read the Greek, they have to try to understand what is the Greek saying and then put it into a word that we use in English. Okay? Now, the Greek word is arsenakoitai. And it's two words. It appears to be two words smashed together in Greek. Now, I wouldn't tell you about this if it wasn't super pertaining to what I was just talking about. So, stay with me here. Arsen is the Greek word for man. Koitai is the Greek word For bed. Now, if you, there's, now this gets really a lot of big words coming at you. Septuagint, okay? How many of you guys know what the Septuagint is? Anybody? Way to go! Way to go! Okay? So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So the the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and there were people in the Greek world who wanted to read it, but they didn't speak Hebrew. So it got translated into Greek. And the common translation that existed at the time of Paul when Paul's writing this, is called the Septuagint. And if you look in the margin of your Bibles, you ever see LXX? It's referencing the Septuagint in some way in the margin when it tells you footnote things. And so here's what's super interesting. If you go back to Leviticus 2013, the words in the Septuagint that they use to describe a man laying with another man Okay, which, which is clearly from the context about same-sex sex, sex uh, is arson and court koitai. And the word arsene never existed before Paul. So no Greek literature of the day had that word in it. And then it started being used after Paul. And so scholars believe that Paul actually took the words from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Leviticus, where it said, don't have sex with other men. And he's taking that, and he's putting it here, smashing it together, and making a word in the New Testament. And so what Paul's doing is he's saying to people, hey, you know that thing in Leviticus that's out, outlawed? Hey, don't do that today either. And so it's just totally going from one culture to another culture that are like 2,000 years apart. And if you're going to try to make the argument that like the homosexuality there isn't the same, the homosexual? Th- these are two different practices of homosexuality that are going on. That's a really, really strong argument. Okay? Now, the the thing that sort of puts the nail in the coffin for this idea that somehow all of the homosexuality... There's six passages. I didn't tell you this yet. There's six passages in the New Testament. Every single one speaks about homosexuality in a negative way. Now, those who are in the, like, like, homosexuality can... Com- combined with Christianity movement, the one foot in, one foot out movement, um, they want to say that somehow God is creating gay people and that it's, it's immoral for God to then tell these people you can't have sexual fulfillment. That's, that's their, their kind of their premise. And here's that doesn't work because if God's creating gay people, he's been doing it all along, because it's been going on for a long time, how come God hasn't ever told us, hey, two guys who feel same-sex attraction can get married, I'm okay with it. If he wants us to embrace gay marriage, God is a terrible communicator. Like, these poor people for thousands of years that have had this same-sex attraction issue have never had an outlet for it. Why wouldn't God communicate from the beginning when he's talking about homosexuality that this, hey, this part of this is okay. It's just the... It's just a promiscuous version that's not okay. So, and then the nail in the coffin, Romans chapter 1, okay? Um, For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. And so you see the word natural there, okay? Uh, And likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the one burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, now, another, another kind of one of those arguments is this isn't the same kind of homosexuality that Paul's condemning here. There was this common practice in Rome called pedastery. Okay, it sounds sort of like pedophile or, you know. And um, pedastery was where a, an older Roman man would take like a 10 or 12 year old boy and would teach him how to be a man. And part of it, though, involved sodomy. And it was just a very common practice in Rome. And so people have said. You know, liberal scholars have tried to say, um, this, is, this is about pedastry, you know, the Roman practice of pedastry, but the words here, I know one Greek word, and it happened to be useful when I was reading this one, men with men, it's arson with arson, it's not men with boys. And there's actually a, uh, a word for pedastry, and I wrote it down, I don't know if I put it in here, um, pederastia. The Greek word for pedastery is pederastia. If Paul was condemning um, just, you know, that awful practice of, of men with boys and, and stuff, he could have used a word to describe that. And you've you got to read the whole flow of Romans 1. Romans 1 is a condemnation of the entire world. It, and it's not like, you know, just one little instance of some specific type of homosexual behavior. It's, it's, just, a, it's just an overarching condemnation of everyone. Uh, and you get to Romans 2, and it condemns the Jews. So you get the whole world except for the Jews condemned in Romans 1. And then you get the Jews condemned in Romans 2, and you get Romans 3, all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's a much bigger uh, projection of sin than just, I'm just describing one little instance in your culture that you need to stop doing. Um, now, uh, the last one I want to go over is 1 Corinthians 6-9. So, I want to encourage you guys who are Christians, who are followers of Jesus, who want to believe whatever Jesus says is right. I want to encourage you that this cannot be an open-handed issue. And some things are open-handed issues. Calvinism, Arminianism, you know, uh, even like cessationism and views on the Holy Spirit and, and infant baptism, you know, like how much does the Sabbath pertain to the day? You know, those, those are, yeah, we want to be humble. Like, I want to be humble. Like, that's my, I'm just kind of, like, not, um, I'm just kind of a humble guy. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) That's called an oxymoron. Um, I just kind of, I'm not a guy who's humble. I'm a guy who just wants to be good with everybody. That's just me. Like, I just want to be, like, I love Calvinists. I love Arminianists, you know? Like, I love, I even love cessationists, guys. Like, wow, that's deep. Many of you are like, what's a cessationist? Don't worry about it. Okay, but, um. But, it, you know, there are things that we have to stand up about. And you cannot twist the scripture and say homosexuality is okay. You can't, even, you can't even make a case from the Bible that it's okay. You know, there's nothing supporting that. But, you know, you can just say Jesus loves outsiders, he loves outcasts, so we need to love them and then let them embrace their life. You know, that's kind of that's how the flow goes. If you're, if you're a liberal Christian, you don't really believe the text is, like the most useful thing, you kind of get to make your own mind up about a lot of things. I mean, that's how that decision's made. And here's the thing: even though all the texts like are pretty clear, the reason the wave is coming, anyways, and people are going to embrace this idea, is because it, people want to. Like, this is you, you. The the church in Ephesus did a good job of standing firm and not tolerating evil people, not t- tolerating false teachers who try to say this is good when it's not. But then you look at the next three churches, they all didn't do a good job. There as you look at the churches in Revelation, there is a consistent problem in church where the culture that we live in influences us to believe things that are wrong. And so it's coming anyway because that's just that's how, how it works. Most people will compromise if they're presented with like a decent argument. And the, and I I watched a guy. Uh, this week on YouTube, I, I didn't just listen to the people who say homosexuality is wrong. I listened to the people who say it's right, too. I really want to understand what they think. And I listened to a guy talk about Romans 1, and I, I mean, not because of his, his son. The reason he was a pastor, and the reason that he was reevaluating what Christianity teaches about homosexuality is because his son struggles with same sex attraction. And he embraces and, and it's, it's kind of a mess but he embraces homosexuality and encourages his son like, to, to follow that lifestyle. And it's not because his arguments are good, it's because his love is good, that he's persuasive. Like he's a loving guy, and he's considerate of what people are struggling with, and um, that is very persuasive, you know? And so we're going to see that happening in our culture, okay. Um, but here's why we can't, we can't tolerate this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6 and 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, da-da-da-da-da, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So, like, I was sitting back and thinking about this as I listened to this guy's persuasive emotional speech about why he embraces his son and affirms his son and i was really moved by it and i i thought i I, i'm a compromiser like i like to make friends with everybody and i thought about it for a second like could we really embrace this idea and i came back to this verse it is such a dangerous position to hold not probably for the most majority of the people who hold it but for the people they're going to give advice to If you give someone advice to go out, it's okay to steal, you know? It's okay to be covetous. It's okay to party on the weekends and get smashed drunk, okay? And if we go back a little further, it's okay to go to verse 9. It's okay to fornicate, okay? Which maybe you don't know what that means. It means to have sex before you're married, Okay, like, that right there, that's as big of a problem in our culture right now as homosexuality. Like, I'm going I'm to go over ten minutes. I apologize, but I just have too much I want to say. We're at 45 right now. So, in our culture, there is this thing, well, there's this stereotype of fundamental Christians in our church, that, or in our country, that we are hateful. Okay? And um, I, I don't think it's true, and I hope I might get to talk about it for a second in a minute but one of the things that is a good argument from people who are in favor of homosexuality they say well how come homosexuality why is that the big sin that everybody condemns so bad in the church you know and they're right like like we need to talk about people who commit adultery we need to talk about people who worship idols which is us for sure the adultery one hopefully not and fornicators like let's you know like how like when i was in college we tend to use homosexuality as a litmus test for Christians. Like, what do you believe about homosexuality? And it determines for us whether or not they, you know, are, like, really honestly uh, putting God first, right? Like, the world wins if you embrace homosexuality. God wins if you don't. But really, there's a lot of other litmus tests we could use. You know, like, when I was in college, I wasn't thinking about homosexuality, but when somebody told me they were Christian, I asked them about their view on sex before marriage. And I remember getting so beat up by this girl, because I told her, I asked, she was like my buddy's new girlfriend, and I asked her, like, you know, well, what do you think about sex before marriage? And I, I was an 18-year-old idiot, getting way too personal. And she's like, oh, yeah, it's totally fine if people love each other, blah, blah, And so then I, like, and this is over, you know, instant messenger, of course, very mature way to have a conversation. And, uh, and I'm like, oh, I'll pray for you. I used to think like that, too. And she just goes off on me, you know, like, and, like, but at the same time, like, do we speak out about that as much as we speak out about homosexuality? Now, that being said, homosexuality is a little different in our culture because there is not a movement and a, a parade and a you know like when I was in college there was a week called Pride Week and they do all these weird things out in the center of the campus for to honor homosexuality and stuff and you know there is political and social activism pr- trying to promote homosexuality and call it good. You know, and so for that reason, homosexuality is maybe we're not the church. Maybe we're not the ones who are so obsessed with it, but it's just that we have to respond to it because it's in the culture that we live in. Um, So sorry, let me wrap up here. Uh, So anyway, uh, we can't be open handed on this issue. We cannot be one foot in, one foot out on this issue because what does it say in verse 10? These people aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. Like this is important. And if you give someone advice that leads them down a path, that takes them away from God, that's, that's dangerous stuff. And so I would make the case we can't do that. Now, I have these five questions I wanted to go over, but I totally don't have time for them. Oh, there's so much more I wanted to talk about. Now, let me just end with this. So there's some really good questions. There were five questions I was going to ask you. Or I was going to answer, kind of. So, like, I teach biology. The whole reason I was excited to talk about this was not because I think of myself as a scholar on, on the Greek language, but because I'd like to talk about the biology of it all, you know? But I don't have time to go there. So, okay. Uh, um, but one thing I would like to say. There's a couple of really good reasons, Well, two things i got to say. Number one thing i got to say. If you're a Christian and you, you're, like, in agreement, like, okay, homosexuality is wrong, the, the world we live in wants to say you're hateful, okay? I hope I hope it didn't come across today as there was any hate in this, okay? Because, like, I, I look at that lifestyle. I, I've listened to several people on both sides of it, and, uh, man, I just, I was filled with compassion this week for people who struggle with same-sex attraction. Um, and a couple of really interesting, so... So as Christians, when we talk about this, if we talk about this, uh, we need to talk about it with such, we need to be very careful, we need to talk about it with such grace and understanding and compassion, um, but also truth. So you don't, you know, Jesus told that girl, um, you know, I don't condemn you either, the woman caught in adultery, but he didn't stop there. He didn't just say, yeah, go ahead, be an adulterer, he didn't do that, then he said, Go and sin no more. So we got to have compassion and grace. I would encourage you to to watch. Like I have really been touched this week by what I've been watching because it's given me compassion for people who are struggling with things that I don't understand. And and there's a guy. His name's Dr. Wesley Hill. I'll probably put a, a video up on the Facebook uh, this week to, to, for you to watch. He's a he's an awesome guy. He's a Christian, and he's where I got most. of He's a He's a New Testament professor at, I think, Wheaton College, and he describes how at the age, he grew, grew up in a Christian home, he describes how at the age, as puberty hit for him, he began to have same-sex attraction toward men, and he didn't know what to do with this because he was from a Christian home, and uh, historically, we have not, as Christians, done a good job talking about this stuff. There's some really great books out there. There's great YouTube videos now you can watch about this, but, you know, this kid is my age, so in the 90s, I'm sure there were, like, virtually zero resources for him, and so... He went on a quest studying uh, the New Testament and learned the languages, got his bachelor's in New Testament languages, got his master's and something like that, got his PhD, he's now a professor. And he's so right on because he goes through all these texts and he talks about why they just can't possibly, it can't be okay to, to, to you know, embrace gay marriage. But he struggles with it. And he writes, he's got a book out it's about being gay and being celibate, and uh, and and he just he just says basically the church in America is really jacked up in that we are sort of marriage focused, and and there's people in our church who are not married, and they probably it's kind of like in this church it's kind of like if you don't have kids it's really probably kind of hard, you know I mean David Newberger we still love him anyway you know but but you know it's we kind of have these Christian cliques so have kids get married and then you can be part of the church but there should be so much more going on inside the community of the church than just having kids and being married. And and he writes this book about celibacy and and how that's what he believes God has for him. Um, Now, there's also this idea out there. I really apologize. Like one minute, two minutes. Uh, There's this girl out here who uh, Stephanie Mapes told me about when I told her I was reading about this stuff. Her name's Rosaria Butterfield. I'll probably put a video up of hers on, on YouTube as well. And she was totally uh, in a lesbian lifestyle, like before marriage, gay marriage was legal, but she was, you know, a lesbian. And uh, she's got this amazing testimony of how she became a Christian. And uh, there's this, this thing she said. There's a lot you can learn from these, these folks. But there's this thing she said. She said, reparative therapy is a heresy of the prosperity gospel. And so she's married to a man now. So so she was able to, you know, change her sexual orientation or, or find, and, and as I've done some research on it, women are a little more flexible in that usually than men. But the idea that you need to be changed and that you need to get married is a, a message of the prosperity gospel. Like the, this guy that's choosing to be celibate and be gay, like, like this whole idea that God, you know, God, what is it, your best life now, you know, Get married, have kids, get rich, be healthy. That's the prosperity gospel. That's not Christianity. There is a much deeper uh, version of Christianity where, regardless of your sexual orientation or your marital status, that just you can be whole in Jesus Christ and, and that He's enough. And and in America, we really have a problem with this idea because we have a problem with the idea that, that some people suffer more than others. That one Christian has one cross to bear, and then another Christian has ten crosses to bear. But that's the unfortunate reality of our existence, is that life isn't fair. And so that's a really hard word about that stuff, and I'd love to go into that more, but I've definitely talked enough. So, um, But general application, maybe you don't know a single person who's, who's living that life. Maybe you never will. But it applies, like, I'd encourage you, go study it, because there is so much you can learn about hospitality and loving people. This is another thing Rosaria Butterfield says. She says, the, this is like something Jesus would say. She says, the Christian church has a lot to learn about loving people from the gay community. I mean, that's a slap in the face right there. And this is coming from a, she's now a pastor's wife, former lesbian. But her basic point is like, dude, the, the gay community, the acceptance, the tolerance, the love, all that stuff that's there, that's like Jesus stuff. Jesus going to the sinners, you know, and being there with them, eating dinner in the house of a tax collector, you know, letting a, letting a prostitute clean his feet off with her hair and her tears. Like that's messy, you know, but that's Jesus. Jesus. And we, dude, we got a lot to learn about how to treat people who are marginalized and who are outsiders, you know? And so, so we, as Christians, we want to stand up and say homosexuality is wrong. And, and I think I've made a good case that, that that's a very important thing that we do. But if we do that and we don't love people well in it, if you just, if one guy, one homosexual guy described the six verses of the Bible about homosexuality as six bullets, and a six shooter, and we just shoot them out at gay people, killing them, you know, and that is so not how Jesus does things, you know, and, and this, this girl, Rosaria Butterfield, and I'll put her YouTube video up too, for you guys to watch, but she, um, she, she, she only has two things she talks about publicly, homosexuality, and hospitality, and it's interesting, the idea that taking people in and loving them where they're at, and listening to them, and reasoning with them—that's the way to deal with this issue. Okay, shooting the bullets of the verses of Scripture at people—you're not going to accomplish anything with that. And like I said, you may never um, interact with a homosexual. I hope—I hope that. Well, I don't know if I hope that we do, but I mean, I, I would hope that we're as Christians willing to, you know. And but this applies to so much more than just homosexuality. It, it applies to all those people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, and, and one, one last thing I wanted to say about that verse. We are all broken. And we are all, we. I'm sure every one of us can find our spot in that list. Probably in more than one place, you know? So there's no pride in in this discussion. There's humility recognizing our own brokenness, okay? And probably just about all of us, our own brokenness of our own sexuality even though we're, most of us are probably heterosexual like, that doesn't mean that we're normal okay? we are not, just like homosexualities are kind of a bent and twisted form of what God created in the garden so are heterosexuals, we're jacked up okay? like I know that I am and I'm guessing most of the guys in this room are just like me okay? so like man there should be such humility and grace on this topic um, man I talked for way too long but I had two and a half hours, and I got it down to 59 minutes and 16 seconds, so that's pretty good. Okay? No, I'm sorry. But uh, hopefully hopefully this is interesting for you. Uh, I would love to talk to you about this. If maybe there's one person in here that this is really an important topic for you for, for some reason or another, I would love to just sit down this week and just talk for hours and encourage you and whatever, So, or five or seven of you or whatever. So let me pray, and, and thank you for being uh, willing to listen. God, thank you so much for your word that guides us, Lord, to to be people who are both standing in truth and wanting to be so gracious and compassionate. Um, Thank you, God. Only you are capable of creating that dynamic. Um, And God, we just want to be like you, Jesus. We want to be like you, who's, who's so compassionate and yet is also willing to say, go and sin no more. So God, don't let our culture influence us to sin to take a position that you don't want us to take. God, let us be just gracious and be your ambassadors in this culture we live in. God, thank you for all you're doing in this church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.